Alrighty, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Hydrocarbon History. As always, it is myself, Tavis Killian, on behalf of Rare Petro, bringing you some historical context and knowledge of all things oil and gas. Now, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to go ahead and frack that subscribe button. I think it's right about there, just below. And if you're listening to the podcast, whatever platform you're on, go ahead, give us a follow, because we've got plenty of great quality content coming ahead. While it is definitely fine to listen to these segments, I think you're going to get more out of it if you are on YouTube. So those of you not watching, come on over. We're going to have lots of fun, learn lots of things. It'll be a great party. But enough self-promo. We have lots of content to get into today. Today's topic is one that has garnered plenty of attention, especially at the start of this year. Cue the flashback. Back in 2005, a small company called TransCanada proposed a project known as the Keystone Pipeline Project. It went well and connected parts of Canada with Midwestern states, and by 2016, completed one of the last expansions that extended it fully into Texas. At about that time, TransCanada Corporation, who is soon to be known as TC Energy, is mulling over another expansion idea known as Phase 4, or as you probably know it, the Keystone XL. You see, this new expanse would serve a more direct route from Canada to Montana, all the way to Steel City in Nebraska, where an existing hub of operations of the pipeline already existed. Expansion would result in a much larger amount of hydrocarbons to be transported, but some definitely viewed this as redundant or unnecessary in general. The project was highly controversial through its lifespan and actually stretched across three presidential campaigns. In February of 2013, 35,000 to 50,000 people gathered in D.C. to hold one of the largest climate rallies in U.S. history. Still, Congress ignored the rally, and in November of 2014, the House of Representatives voted on the issue. The project had officially made it through. January 2015, Obama vetoes the project. January 2017, Trump takes action to permit the operation of the pipeline. January 2021, Biden revokes the permit his first day in office, and the project dies for now at least. I walked you through a brief history of one of the most recent pipeline fiascos and you can see just how strongly people feel about it. We only looked at political conflicts, but if we revisited the entire history of the disagreement around the project, we would be here for hours simply listing all of the stakeholders affected. People have many different concerns over the pipeline. Is it environmentally friendly? Is it safe? Will it create jobs? Will people be paid royalties for allowing the pipeline on their land? No matter who you are, there are likely some uncertainties and questions you've got surrounding pipelines, so this episode of Hydrocarbon History will be focused on the implementation and subsequent development of pipelines in the United States. We're going to go ahead and pick up where we left off in the last episode of Hydrocarbon History, which you can find on our channel. But if you've forgotten, Colonel Edwin Drake had just closed out the 1850s by pioneering a crude method of oil drilling. Pun intended there. The following decade, everybody was producing oil and transporting it. Since this is the mid-1850s, we don't exactly have access to tanker trucks, so the people of the time were transporting their oil out of rural Pennsylvania by horse or flatboat, where the oil would be loaded onto trains and eventually taken to a refinery. They were using old wooden barrels back then because that was about the only container that they had on hand that was large enough to do so. Got an old fish barrel? Fill it with oil. Got an old whiskey barrel? Fill it with oil. 
The barrels were initially intended to hold 42 gallons of oil, but people started building them to 44 so that two gallons could leak in transit, and the purchaser of the oil would still have their expected 42 gallons. In case you hadn't noticed, environmental regulations were a little bit more relaxed back then. Eventually, so much oil was exiting the Oil Creek area that the road was backed up with Teamsters taking the oil to the train terminal. These Teamsters, or crews of men that would transport oil, had cornered the market on oil deliveries and would charge as much as $4 a barrel for delivery. This wasn't too bad a deal when oil was $12 a barrel in 64, but the lack of pipelines and other significant and dependable transportation methods meant that pricing was incredibly sensitive to supply and demand fundamentals. Charging $4 per barrel is a little bit unreasonable when oil is less than 10 cents a barrel and the barrel itself is $3. One man named Samuel Van Sickle grew tired of being taken advantage of by these Teamsters. After the discovery of the Pithole oil field, Teamsters pounced on the opportunity to make more money. The oil field was five miles from train stations in the middle of nowhere in the overgrown wilderness with absolutely no roads. The Teamsters saw this as an opportunity to charge even more than $4 a barrel and pocket a little bit of extra money. Well, Van Sickle got into the area, and unfortunately for the Teamsters, he refused to pay their ridiculous rates and decided that it could be done with pipelines. In 1865, he laid out five miles of two-inch wrought iron pipe and 15-foot joints from the station to the field. According to a historian that lived shortly after him, the finished pipeline was tested at a pressure of 900 barrels per square inch and partially buried. Yeah, I don't quite get that one either. From there, three steam pumps were looped in, allowing the transfer of about 81 barrels per hour. Eventually, Van Sickle's team was able to get to 2,500 barrels of capacity per day. His next biggest problem was hiring enough bodyguards to fight off the Teamsters attempting to sabotage his wells in order to protect their profitable monopoly. Soon, more and more people began to imitate Van Sickle's now successful project. By 1871, there were a few midstream companies that owned around 500 miles of pipeline connecting producing fields to storage and transportation centers. Samuel Van Sickle was one of dozens to attempt to build a pipeline, but his successful method spread like wildfire until it eventually caught the attention of America's greatest oil baron, John D. Rockefeller. But even then, we've got to rewind it just a few more years. You see, Rockefeller came from very humble beginnings in life and the oil industry. He caught his first big break when he secured a deal with the king of transportation, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt would allow Rockefeller to transport his oil by train at discounted price as long as Rockefeller could fill all of his cars with oil. They agreed but there was one little problem. Rockefeller didn't have the production capacity to fill much more than just half of Vanderbilt's trains. He worked hard to acquire more properties, refineries, and wells so that his business grew into what we know as Standard Oil. Once his influence reached more than just the Northwest, he made use of other railroads run by Vanderbilt's competitors in order to pit them against each other so that he could get the best deal for transporting his oil. Rockefeller had grown to the point of near monopolizing the oil industry, and railroads were not pleased with how Rockefeller had perceivingly used them. They responded by pulling all of their rebates and discounts that they initially afforded him that had gotten him to such a successful position. At this point, Rockefeller controls a very solid portion of the entire country's oil and refined products. That little price hike and those little rebates saved him a lot of money, so this change would have resulted in astronomical expenses to transport his oil. His solution? 
he didn't need the railroads. He's going to make his own network of pipelines. He already dominated the upstream and downstream sectors. Why not venture into midstream? He weighed his options and he decided it might be a better idea to take a huge financial risk and he hired crews to lay 1.5 miles of pipe every day, establishing the groundwork of his pipeline system stretching from Ohio to Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Remember those other midstream companies I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that altogether had collectively 500 miles of pipeline? Well, <laughs> Rockefeller dwarfed them with this new 4,000 mile network connecting pipelines directly to factories. The railroad was now totally unnecessary and most crude and refined product transportation situations. Unfortunately for the men who ran the trains like Vanderbilt, crude actually was responsible for 40% of all railroad capacity and removing that crude ended up triggering a bubble and subsequent burst, which was the groundwork for the panic of 1873 or America's first depression. From there, Rockefeller continues to buy up all oil-related businesses he can afford. I mean, refineries, other transportation systems, storage sites, pretty much anything he can afford, which is all of them he gets. At this point, he controls 90% of oil in the U.S., and the railroads are fuming. Still, Rockefeller wasn't totally out of the railroads. He did require one specific railroad to transport oil to Pittsburgh. In order to prevent Rockefeller from taking everything, the owner of that railroad, Tom Scott, decides to build his own pipeline as a safety precaution. If he can transport crude himself, he can protect him and his business from Rockefeller's savage business tactics. Rockefeller does not approve of this one bit, so he closes all refineries on Scott's railroad and stops shipping oil on his trains altogether because, well, all of the infrastructure in that area is actually owned by Rockefeller now. Scott's hand is forced, and he has to lay off thousands of railroad workers. There's just too much economic damage. Those workers soon begin to riot, and they burn Tom Scott's train yard. The following morning, 39 buildings and 1,200 trains have been destroyed. This leaves Rockefeller controlling 98% of the world's kerosene and oil, and left him worth $230 billion in today's money. From there, the American oil industry continues to evolve, eventually preventing monopolies like that of Rockefeller's Standard Oil, and by 1920, the API estimates there are 40,000 miles of pipeline in the country, alive and racing with oil. This pipeline network connects a lot of the U.S. to oil and gas that would otherwise have been regionally inaccessible. It was instrumental in war efforts and eventually established the groundwork that allowed us to be so successful in fracking in this country today. It's no secret even today that the rest of the world is incredibly envious of the United States' far-reaching and superior pipeline network. And that establishes all the history and brings us to today. The U.S. pipeline network contains about 3 million miles of mainline and other pipelines that link natural gas production areas and storage facilities all the way to consumers. In 2019, the Natural Gas Transportation Network serviced 77 million customers by delivering 28.3 trillion cubic feet of gas. That statistic may be incredibly surprising to some people because that's a lot of gas, and some of it they used, but they never actually saw a pipeline deliver it. Here's a map from the EIA showing just how expansive both the interstate and intrastate systems are, usually buried underground. I mean, you drive over these things quite frequently, yet you can't even tell. Groups like the Center for Biological Diversity are quick to point out that between 1986 to 2013, pipelines spilled an average of 76,000 barrels of hydrocarbons per year. According to the EIA, refineries alone received 4.4 billion barrels of just crude 
in 2019. If you compare that 76,000 barrels of hydrocarbons to the 4.4 billion barrels of just crude, it is 0.0017% of the total. That's just crude oil that was received by refineries. In other words, a fraction of all hydrocarbons transported annually. Now, I'm not arguing that 76,000 barrels is insignificant. We should be good stewards of our environment. But when compared to the sheer magnitude of everything transported and how it benefits us, it's statistically insignificant. Other arguments arise from the method of transportation, but even then, pipelines are usually not the worst of the worst. There's a Forbes article from 2018 that breaks down the hierarchy very well. What's the best transportation method when considering human death and property destruction? Well, truck is worse than train, which is worse than pipeline, which is worse than boat. Well, why don't we just use more boats to ship oil around the coast? Well, then let's consider the best transportation method for minimizing environmental impact. Boat is worse than pipeline, which is worse than truck, which is worse than rail, mainly because aquatic environments are so easily impacted. So results of a spill from a boat are going to be dramatic compared to that of a leaky pipeline. What if perhaps we looked at it from the amount of oil spilled per billion ton miles? Or in other words, what's the most effective, most safe at transporting? Truck is worse than pipeline, which is worse than rail, which is worse than boat. We could go all day redefining criteria, but the positions would continue to shift no matter how you looked at it. Thankfully, pipeline technology continues to improve. 100% of natural gas in the United States is moved by pipeline, so that is why you and I can turn on the heat in the winter or use gas stoves should we have the luxury to afford those things. Pipelines have been easily vilified for over a century, and it's unlikely that the trend will stop anytime soon. If we just consider the sheer magnitude, I mean the absolute massive volume of hydrocarbons that pipelines are moving on a day-to-day -day basis, the few accidents here and there are truly minimal. As technology continues to improve, we also get better methods of coping with leak detection. Sure, people are making use of control rooms to monitor pressure and volume, but did you know the industry also makes use of not only satellites, but drones to detect leaks even faster than they ever have? Our everyday life demands the use of hydrocarbons, and thankfully, we've developed a network that allows us to deliver those wherever they are demanded, and in case we encounter a surplus, that same network can quickly mobilize it to the coasts, where it can be shipped to other countries to service their energy needs or stored for us to use later. To think that it was all the result of a man who is too cheap to pay a horse and buggy to cart his barrels is baffling. But that is all the time we've got. I hope you learned something from our history of pipeline use. The episode has already run long, so I gotta stop, but if you want to learn more, please check the description below for links taking you directly to where I sourced all of my information. If you enjoyed the video, please comment about what aspects of the oil and gas industry's history you would like us to break down next. If you didn't like the video, well, <laughs> tell me. Leave it in the comments below. I read through everything you leave, and yeah, there's been a few mean ones here and there, but so far, it seems that we're providing accurate information that is yeah a little slightly biased but still educating people otherwise you can find plenty of other content news podcasts and periodicals throughout this youtube channel or you can go directly to rarepetro.com where it has everything remember to frack that subscribe button and while you're at it drill through that like button if you learned something thanks again for tuning in and until we see you next time take care everybody